Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I predicted last week that I thought it was a possibility that during the Victory Day event, Putin would announce a ceasefire in place. That didn't happen. However, I think the progress of the conflict is such that he could have mobilized more troops or made more promises, and he didn't. I'm hoping for all concerns that there is a uh, kind of a, a de-escalation of fighting. Remember that the separatists in the eastern Ukraine, bolstered by special forces, Russian troops, and Ukrainians, have been at war. Well, they've been skirmishing for ever since the Crimea was was annexed. And I think something like, I mean, the casualties have been huge. Something like fifteen thousand people dead on each side. So it's been serious or on both sides. What does this mean for oil pricing? I think the predictions of $150 oil just not going to happen. Lockdown of Chinese metropolitan areas is a negative. Availability of Russian oil that current estimates are about 80% of Russian oil and products are moving one place or the other, largely India and China, I guess. Oil prices present plenty of incentive to drill. In terms of natural gas prices, very seasonal. So LNG pricing will probably continue to come off. The latest concern for Russian gas supplies is NAFTA gas, which is the transit gas company in Ukraine, is closed down transit of Russian gas. Don't know quite what that means, but it's happening in May. I think Europe will be primarily grabbing every bit of gas they can and putting it in storage so that they're ready to go when next winter starts. They will also be building more LNG import capacity, especially in Germany, which has lagged on putting in two projects. Those projects will now go forward. In terms of power prices, power prices in the U.S., pretty much go up and down with natural gas. The natural gas pricing has been quite high. I mean, 7 or $8 on a shoulder month, that fall and spring are considered to be shoulder months, is, is very high pricing. But just keep an eye on the 23 price, which is around 5 Now, 5 is terrific, and the 24 price is 4 I mean, there's nothing wrong with those prices. You don't need QT or Antero or Antero or, or you know, any of the other gas companies here. You're fine. Now, most of these companies are heads. They have to run through their hedges, or the hedge at least half. That looks like a pretty good situation. In terms of supply demand in the U.S. market, gas exports through LNG are 13 out of total demand of around 95. So the 13 will be added to, but it takes a couple of years to add LNG capacity. There's about five feet a day or so being worked on in various stages. So all that will probably get built given, you know, LNG prices in Europe or in Asia many times. You buy your gas for $5 in the U.S., it costs you $2 to liquefy. 
dollars go to transport. I mean, obviously, there's big profit for the utility, whoever commits to firm transportation, so that'll happen. Wind and solar are a lot of wind or solar capacity supposed to come on. Solar panels, all of, you know, inverters, all of the things got more expensive. So solar, which costs to install, going down, it's now up. And so it will, that plus high gas prices will cause higher power prices. Not the end of the world. Just in terms of inflation impact on oil, gas, oil pricing, gas pricing, and power pricing, hard to imagine that when we get to, you know, say August, September, October, just ahead of the November election, we won't on a year-to-year basis be talking about pretty modest levels as compared to the prior year, maybe even a decline. So that particular component of inflation looks manageable. I don't want to use the word transitory, which got everyone who used that word in a lot of trouble. One thing I'd like to point out is diesel. I know some of us are both to Bucks or whatnot use diesel, and of course, uh, diesel's in effect to oil, and so it impacts star group diesel because the Russians supplied a lot of it. There are 10 million barrels a day, about seven or so came out as products in large amounts of distillate, and that, that isn't available in Europe. So if you look at distillate prices in, in the United States or in Europe, they're trading until oil was $200. Now that will settle down and make a difference if people use diesel or, or uh, tool oil or uh, what have you. And for people in boating season, just starting here in the Northeast, that diesel will be high in the beginning. I'm hoping by August or September, it will be at least a buck, buck and a half lower per gallon. And that will also help anyone who uses heating oil will help our group as a heating oil retailer. In terms of capital markets, this is a pretty substantial decline the thing to do with this decline with your positions is try to, you know, be unimpacted by it. Don't think of it as money lost. You have a position in a security. You like the security. The fact that it's trading for 20% less doesn't mean you should like it any less. The key question is, what do you do to the extent you have dry powder? Is this the time to commit the dry powder? I think in a normal market, you would 20, 25% decline. Of course, you, you know, that's why you hold back and, and are able to acquire positions you really want to own at lower prices. It's a little bit different this time because the Fed balance sheet is, uh, has never, 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 uh, no one imagined that it would be, you know, $8 trillion in a, $22 trillion GNP. I mean, the Fed balance sheet before the Fed learned about quantitative easing was around $1.5 trillion. And to try to stimulate more activity after the 08 recession, because it was a very slow recovery from that quantitative easing with the Fed buying uh, mortgage bonds and, and government bonds, and then fact that builds up the balance sheet, makes more money available. The, other places, and and in fact, it it was the Fed balance sheet was on its way down when COVID hit in January, uh, February of 2000. The Fed, to their credit, immediately brought everything in sight. So, having gotten the the Fed balance sheet from four and a half trillion down to four trillion or so on its way to three and a half or three or lower, 
they basically said, we're coming to the rescue of, you know, a shutdown such as COVID was going to produce. And the Fed balance sheet in combating COVID went from $4 trillion to $8 trillion. Now they have to bring it down again. Why do they have to bring it down again? Well, they have to bring it down again so they have, you know, they can use that strategy again. Of the $4 trillion of increase in the Fed balance sheet, about $2 trillion wound up in excess bank reserves. In other words, banks didn't really need it, so they parked it with the Fed. And I believe they earn a small interest rate on the amount of the excess reserves that they parked with the Fed. One way to think about this, the Fed says they're going to come down at $95 billion a month, <laughs> about one-third mortgage bonds, two-thirds. Now, they don't have to sell these securities. All they're doing is running off. In other words, as interest coupons show up or principal amounts, they they just don't reinvest them. So it's a it's a runoff, but it is one of the reasons we have, you know, the bond market off by, you know, if you own a bond fund, it's off about and at 15%, the stock market, the owner index is top 20%. One of the reasons I think is the expectation of pulling this, this amount of capital out of our capital markets. Now, you would think that at 95 billion a month or roughly a billion two a year, which you have $2 billion of excess reserves, which you think the banking system still has, that you'd be able to run this program for a year and a half or two years without it having that much of an impact. But the market is um, likes to try to predict things. So I, I think both the bond market and the stock market, or capital markets in general, caught sight at the possibility of this happening. The Fed Reserve governors can talk all they want about 50 basis point increase, not taking a 75 basis point increase off the table. All that, I don't think is anywhere near as significant as the rundown in the Fed balance sheet. Is it something to be concerned about? Yes. The companies that you want to own are companies that are not dependent on raising more money to do their plan. They're plant companies with, where the cash flow exceeds that. So, you know, it, it shouldn't have the impact. It shouldn't have any kind of significant impact, the kind of companies that you want to own. Now, if you own a company that's dependent on selling more equity and borrowing a lot, money or whatnot, that's a little bit different. But most investors in the past period of time have shunned those companies. They own companies like the the tech companies who generate way more cash than they use. In fact, that's the way the oil and gas business is developed. Your large, successful independents don't have debt anymore. They they keep their capex to 60 or 65% of their cash flow. So they're um, they have they can pay a dividend and and, uh, and 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 add to their add reduce their debt further add to their cash balance but to be opportunistic. So this is all pretty healthy in terms of the labor market. I mean, a recession is two quarters of real GNP decline. So the first quarter had a one and a half percent real GNP, real GNP being GNP adjusted for inflation, and the second quarter where we're you know. Uh, you know, we're a month and a half into it here in the middle of May. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think anyone would be surprised to see it have a decline. Well, two consecutive quarters of real GMP decline constitute a recession, but recession you typically have 
high unemployment. I mean, the unemployment rate, you know, the job market will probably calm down a bit, but the unemployment rate's like 3.5%, 3.6%. There's way more jobs added, three or 400,000 a month. I mean, there clearly is the need for more employees. There's not a business, you know, in energy, which I'm very familiar with, or any other company where labor isn't short, where the demand for, for labor isn't well in excess of supply. The people who watch this, the economists who watch this, bring their hands a bit because they say, as compared to pre-pandemic, there's still five or six million people who haven't rejoined the labor force. I think as time goes on, one of the things that the economists are going to find is that some number of those people aren't being counted as being in the labor force, but they are gainfully employed on a consulting basis or something. So I, I do think labor is short and probably will continue to be short. So if we have a slight drawdown, you know, 1% or 2% decline in real GMP in the second quarter, what will that mean in the third quarter? As I say, I think at least the oil and gas and power side of the inflation trend will be lower. It will be more under control, maybe even a decline. But that doesn't mean that the third quarter, September 30, might not have a slight decline. What is going on here? Well, I think what is going on is that the consumer, mainly people like all of us on the phone, is a little hesitant. To, to spend on discretionary items. Part of that is, you know, inflation of food costs and, you know, fuel costs, power costs and whatnot. Part of it is having a proxy war going on against the nuclear power. That's kind of a worrisome thing. I frankly think part of it is our political leadership. And, you know, we don't have time to get into that. But I mean, does anyone really look forward to 24, seeing Trump run against Biden again? I don't think so. So there, there is, I think there's going to be a tendency here. You may see it in terms of Netflix subscriptions being down or Disney subscriptions being down. You may see it in, in Amazon, you know, clearly. I mean, Amazon was a $3,400 stock down to $2,200 stock. I mean, clearly they overbuilt, got ahead of themselves in terms of building warehousing and logistics and whatnot, and they have admitted it, and it's going to hurt them for a couple of quarters where the cost would be higher than would otherwise be the case had they not added more warehouse capacity than they really need to add more logistics. The other places you'll see it, I think, you know, we're all very dependent on their iPhones, but you know, you can put off updating your iPhone for a couple of quarters. I think there's going to be a lot of incremental stuff, and that leads into what Michael and I have been discussing about tech companies decided preference for software companies or chip companies or whatnot that are selling to businesses, not to retail consumers, under the theory that, especially with a short labor market, one of the things that all businesses will be trying to do is do the work that needs to get done with fewer people. Well, that, that's an opportunity for a Microsoft or a Snowflake, Salesforce, or a uh, uh, or HubSpot. And girding all this, trying to have software, but you gotta combine the software with hardware, hardware being the chips. And God knows over these Wednesday calls, we spent plenty of time talking about chips. And NVIDIA, which is uh, one of Mike's favorites, advanced micro devices, which had very good results. 
the possibility of you know Intel somehow turning it around. Taiwan Semiconductor, which one of Mike's favorites, because they just seem to be better making these chips. The, the, the fact is that an Apple or a, an Amazon or Google has the capability to design their own chips. So, you know, are they in effect cutting out the NVIDIA, the advanced microsizes, the Intels, or the Qualcomm? But I do think we're on, Michael and I are on the right track. Michael especially knows this much better. The focus in on the software and the chips. And it, you can, based on market capitalization, you could say NVIDIA's done a better job than anyone else. I don't want to want to turn the rest of the half hour over to Michael, but I mean, one of the things that distinguishes NVIDIA, and presumably Intel's going to try to replicate whatnot, is joining the software and, and the chips. And of course, that Amazon making its own chips or, or Apple making its own chips, that, that's of course what they're doing with that. I've gone on way too long. We only have about 10 minutes left for Michael. So uh, I'll stand down and Michael can tell you, uh, can emphasize which parts of this, you know, long discussion that he especially agrees with. So obviously the markets have been a bit of turmoil. I'll first point out that in, in a way, these are situations we sort of relish because in the last couple of years, it's been very hard to buy anything. Maybe these are better opportunities. So it's hard to, you don't want to catch a falling knife, but there's certainly better opportunities from a valuation perspective than there were before. As Hunt said, the really nice thing that we like about B2B software is that in a lot of cases, it tends to reduce headcount requirements. And whether it's through pure automation or just making your workforce more efficient, we think those investments are going to continue to be made. And as Hunt mentioned, some of them and a lot of that requires additional semiconductors. So maybe you are running some really complex data models and you're using Snowflake to do some of that data aggregation and you're running those artificial intelligence models on NVIDIA GPUs, which are run in the cloud or maybe you have your own AI data center, like that's the kind of stuff that companies are pouring money into. And use the example of Facebook because they've they've made a public announcement as to how much money they're spending on NVIDIA server cl- clusters. The the use case in their in their situation is that it's harder to track people for ad targeting than it was before due to the privacy settings that that Apple's enabled. So the way around that is to do a better job with data analytics. So that's one example of where a heavy investment in in what NVIDIA provides, which is a combination of software and hardware, helps them address a market challenge. So yeah, so the trickle down from that is NVIDIA has to get their chips made by somebody. And that somebody has been Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung so far. And Taiwan Semiconductor is the clear leader in that. They've been really the most successful and staying on the leading edge over the years. Different players like Global Foundries have fallen off and behind. Intel has a really exciting plan to try to catch up. The downside of that plan is the fab that Taiwan Semiconductor owns in Oregon. They just struggled so much with trying to make it more profitable. And they finally got it to be somewhat profitable, but the cost structure there I believe was about 2x what it is in Taiwan. And that, that cost structure kind of boils boils back to 
yeah, labor costs are higher, but it's a lot more than that. It's the technical expertise that's required to run these fabs. And we don't really know. We know that Intel's done a very good job of, of scaling and manufacturing their chips over the years, but presumably it's really hard on the leading edge. And as we're seeing with Samsung, Samsung's trying to scale it. Samsung's one of the largest fabs in the world, and they're struggling on the, on the memory side to stay on the leading edge. On the Intel front, I have questions as to their long-term competitiveness. Nonetheless, all those fabs are going to have to be built out with new capital equipment. The goal of decoupling is maybe a overly lofty goal. It is probably beneficial for more countries to do more stuff in-house, but the reality is for consumer-type products and even business and industrial applications, anything non-military, we probably need the scale and diversified manufacturing base of a global semiconductor market, which we as a world should be very proud of the fact that we have such an amazing supply chain there. These global conflicts call all of that into question, but what's been accomplished so far has been, been quite impressive and unraveling it is going to be very expensive and, and may, maybe not sustainable assuming we go back to a time of peace. So all that is to say <laughs> yeah, that the try to we, we try to focus on stuff that's going to that's going to be able to work through inflation but are still benefiting from some of these longer term trends that we see benefiting software automation semiconductors in the next decade or so yeah that the amazing we've run into a couple of situations with our businesses where they have undertaken a program to store large amounts of information that they never would have done before for example to take everything that's going on around it about an individual well and upload it and one of the things one of one of the one of one of the things we see happening is that the storage the cost to put a lot of information on Microsoft Azure Amazon web services is really quite reasonable so the opportunity for Microsoft or for Amazon you know is, is sensational they both have a huge lead. I mean, number three, I guess, is Google, but I'm a huge lead providing these these services. What I don't fully understand, and in the remaining, uh, we've got a couple minutes left, try to draw Mike out on, is if I'm Microsoft or I'm Amazon, why won't I be providing whatever services software is needed to draw information out of those all, all that stored information in the cloud so for a microsoft or an amazon or why can't you do both in other words store all the information and also have software that will enable the user to to pull the information together the user wants and i suppose one of the answers is you don't want to be too dependent on one source so another answer might be that you're basically don't trust that the same guy who's providing cloud storage to you is going to come to you and say, oh, there's a more efficient way to do it. You can do it with half the storage you're using. But Michael, in just a few minutes remaining, I mean, uh, this, this I guess, is, is one of the logics that Snowflake supporters point to, that whoever, whoever you are, you're going to be someone other than Amazon and you know, Amazon Web Services and Microsoft Azure to help 
enable you to utilize storage or is that an oversimplification? Well, I think there's two points I want to make based on, on what you said there. Snowflake is a good example of a software product that it's a solution that you can integrate to a total software product for a given company that reduces the amount of labor required to build said product. Specifically, it's around big data analytics. One of the somewhat advantages is also that you can maybe not be as dependent on one single cloud provider. But I don't think that's the major driver. I think the major driver is you can, there's a shortage of engineering talent in general prior to COVID and coming out of COVID that's far more acute. Uh, so having a, a system that's good at, at essentially making it quicker to be able to develop these applications is a net positive. On the, from the other perspective of why doesn't Microsoft come in and do this? Let's talk about that in the same vein. If you remember when we talked about horizontal SaaS companies versus vertical SaaS companies, in that same vein, Microsoft Azure is a horizontal solution. It has great features in, that you can apply to any given industry vertical, whether it's oil and gas or automotive, for example. So it's more likely that there are industry specialists within oil and gas that are going to really understand the needs and requirements of an oil and gas business. So it's really better for them to actually build the application for oil and gas utilizing Microsoft's products. So Microsoft builds it once and then every industry can utilize those tools to build a specially tailored product. And I think that's probably the best way to think about it. All right. Good. Well, we've run through our 30 minutes. It's finally uh, for you. Those of you living in the Northeast, it's finally gotten to be a little warmer. We're at least more likely to be on the water sooner rather than later in the next week or two. For those who come sailing on the Classic, stay in touch with Jeff Trulove. But it's uh, 4 o'clock Thursdays, 4 o'clock Fridays, and then meet, meet at Walk Creek by 10 o'clock Saturdays to go across the Point of Woods. And when we get started in May, we'll go with that schedule right through October. We've got lots of boats. We need sailors, and we especially need sailors who put together crews and be there most of the time. And with that, very, very happy outcome to be talking about sailing. And remember, if you're, if you're <laughs> completely discouraged by your investing, this always happens. Not, not normally this kind of a drawdown, but the best thing to do is to Hang in there with your conviction, and over a three, four, five-year period, you'll be very pleased with the results. And don't forget about the April and May of uh, 22. With that, we'll talk next week. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. Hey, thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.